This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, if you've not already, please open your Bible with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 will be in verses 10 to 13 this morning for our sermon titled, Finding Present Contentment in Future Hope. Finding Present Contentment in future hope. And as you're getting there, I want you to ask yourself the following question. Ask yourself the following question. How does my behavior change now based on what I believe will happen in the future? How does my behavior change now based on what I believe will happen in the future? Think about that. A few years ago, my wife Mariah and I were preparing to move out of our apartment, and as we got closer, I was becoming increasingly more and more anxious, not about how we would get everything out of our apartment or if our small group would actually show up to help us move, though I think those may have been valid concerns. No, I was worried about the massive tear, and you can look at my hands, literally massive, tear in our carpet that our dog bunny had dug a few months before. This tear was so large, the concrete underneath the carpet was visible, uh, and Bunny had somehow even clawed into the concrete. We had to, I mean, we don't have to trim her nails because of it, right? She clawed so deep that she did her own nail trimming. And uh, because I knew that at the end of our time living in this apartment, someone else was moving in and expected our apartment to be in perfect condition, I was concerned and worried about how we would fix and how much it might cost us to replace the carpet and the concrete. Of course, I wouldn't have cared about the state of the carpet or the concrete, wouldn't have had anxiety, frustration, resentment towards my dog if I knew that the building would be destroyed and torn down after we moved out. But because I knew someone else was moving in in the future, my behavior changed accordingly. Because of my future belief, my present behavior changed. As we look at this passage in 2 Peter, we see that Peter's audience was similarly impacted by what they believed would happen in the future. What happened was Peter received word that Christians throughout Asia Minor were becoming increasingly concerned about whether Jesus would return. In fact, there were people teaching these Christians that Jesus wasn't going to return because if he was, he would have done so already. It had been like, what, 30 years or so at this point? And they're like, why hasn't he returned? And as a result, they would ask things like, if Jesus, if Jesus is never coming back, then why not live however you want and enjoy life in whatever way makes you happy? Why not? And not surprisingly, people believed these things. They began doubting in the return of Jesus and as a result stopped living for Jesus, started living for themselves because their future belief determined their present behavior. They stopped believing Jesus was going to come back and as a result lived however they wanted. I think just like the Christians to whom Peter wrote struggled to believe that Jesus would come back again, we too struggle to believe Jesus would return. Rather than believing with certainty that Jesus is coming back, we doubt and think that Jesus should have come back by now. For them, it was 30 years. For us, it's been, what, 2,000? And we're like, where is he? And as a result, we doubt and think he should be here. We live no differently, therefore, than the world 
around us. We act, we live as if we have no hope, or we place our hope in a political party or our own financial situations, or we turn to things that may numb our hopelessness because we don't really trust in Jesus. And I think that our reason for doing this is because what we believe will happen in the future determines not only our present behavior, but also our present contentedness or lack thereof. And so often, our present discontentment is the result of future hopelessness. Where we believe, often subconsciously, or maybe as the result of our American culture telling us this, that the only thing we can count on is the future, in the future, is that we're going to die and be left alone, that there's nothing in this world that can make our lives better, and so we experience despair or discontentment in the present. That's what we believe. And in the face of this despair, we do everything we can to distract or numb ourselves, or we live in constant anger and frustration, because if all there is for us is death, then we feel like we're left with no other option. As we look back to the text, however, I love howevers, howevers, buts. As we look back to the text, however, Peter provides us with a better option. And what we'll see through this passage is that Peter's message for us, which is also our big idea, is that if we believe Jesus is coming back, if we believe Jesus is coming back, we will behave by preparing for his return. If we believe Jesus is coming back, we will behave by preparing for his return. And Peter shows us this by answering two questions for us through the text. Two questions. Yes, first, what should we believe about the future? And how should this impact the way that we live now? What should we believe about the future? And how should we live and how should this impact the way that we live now? So as we move forward throughout this text, we're going to see first how Peter answers these questions. And then at the end, I want us to consider some implications of what he says. Let's look at the first question to start. What should we believe about the future? Well, if you would look with me at verse 10, verse 10 of chapter 3. It says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, when we hear a verse like this, I think, and I would guess, most of us do one of two things. We either instantly zone out because this sounds so confusing and pointless and we feel nauseous thinking about the end times or we refuse to listen any further if what is said about the end times doesn't match what I already believe. Maybe you grew up in the church and teaching about the end times was used to scare you into obedience. Maybe you had or have rapture anxiety because you were told as a kid if you misbehave, Jesus is going to leave you on earth to fend for yourself when he comes and takes your parents away to heaven. Or maybe talking about the end times makes you feel scared or sad or uneasy, and you wish we could just ignore all of this. I would guess each of us here feels one of these ways. <clears throat> and so as we move forward, I'd like to ask that you, wherever you're at, that you allow Peter to speak for himself, Allow Peter to speak for himself, and you allow yourself to be encouraged by what Peter says, because 
If you do, I believe that what you'll find is that what Peter says about the end times is more hopeful, more encouraging, and more challenging than you may have previously thought. He has good news for us. Let's listen to what Peter says. Can we do that? All right. Well, as we examine what Peter is saying here, there's two issues in this passage that make it difficult to understand what Peter's getting at. There's two issues. The first is that end times apocalyptic passages are almost always hard for us to understand because, as we know this, we are less familiar with apocalyptic genre than people in Peter's time were. And the second, that's first, the second is that this passage just feels confusing. You read it, not sure what's going on, especially that last line of verse 10 where it says, the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. We're like, what? (laughs) What does this mean? And so in order to understand Peter rightly, we need to answer these issues. So we'll look at the first issue. How should we handle apocalyptic passages generally, and how does that apply here? Well, the initial challenge, like we said, in interpreting this passage is that apocalypses, which apocalypses literally mean revelation because they reveal something to us, apocalypses are unfamiliar to us. We're more familiar with letters, or at least I think we used to be familiar with letters, and epistles, as they are often called, and of which this passage is, but we're unsure what to do with end times or apocalyptic literature, especially ancient end times apocalyptic literature, which this passage is also. They feel, I think, a lot to us like Shakespeare. Shakespeare's original audience knew what was going on, and uh, English teachers can supposedly understand Shakespeare, but the rest of us are not sure exactly what's going on. So that's how we feel. So to help us, Brian Tabb, he's a professor of biblical theology at Bethlehem Seminary. He provides Uh, insight into apocalyptic literature, and in so doing, he kind of puts us on a similar footing to Peter's original audience. Tab, he says, apocalypses as a genre have two principal functions. First, they encourage and comfort believers during severe trials or following disaster, and second, they challenge readers to adopt a new perspective on reality in light of coming judgment, and to live accordingly. Notice, Tab does not say that apocalypses are meant to detail precisely what the end of the world will look like, nor when the end of the world may take place. Instead, Tab shows us that apocalyptic writing is meant to encourage us by giving us hope and challenge us to think differently about our present lives in light of future expectations. This means... That if we are to understand Peter fairly and rightly, we have to recognize that Peter is writing to encourage us and challenge our perspectives given that he is writing apocalyptically. That's the first issue. The second issue then is that the end of this verse is confusing. We'll just say it, right? We can all agree it's confusing. Many scholars have struggled to figure out what this means. Thankfully, there is a way to translate and interpret this verse That provides us with great clarity. And this way is presented to us by Albert Walters, among others, who's provided incredible insight and wisdom into Peter's writings. Super helpful. Walters says that we should accept the reading, which the ESV says is the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. We should accept that reading, but reject a common assumption about the context which has made this reading unnecessarily difficult. 
This assumption is that the worldview which is given expression in 2 Peter 3 sees the coming judgment as cosmic annihilation, a complete destruction or abolition of the created order. He says, against this, we shall argue that the author of 2 Peter pictures the day of judgment as a smelting process from which the world will emerge purified. Smelting process. If you're like me, you're probably wondering, what on earth are we doing talking about a smelting process? Uh, what does metalworking have to do with the end of the world? Who knows? Well, I'm so glad that you asked. Metalworking. If we read earlier in this passage, we find that Peter is making an analogy that the end of the world will look similar to how it looked at the time of Noah and the flood. Only this time, instead of the world being renewed through the flood waters, now the world will be renewed through a purifying fire like we see happen in a smelting process. Let's read. We're still in chapter 3, verses 5 to 7. You can follow along with me. Peter says, in response to the false teachers here who say that Jesus is never coming back, he says that they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged or flooded with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. This is amazing. Peter is presenting us with a metalworking analogy to describe the end of the world. Metalworking. One of my good friends actually does some metalworking as a hobby. <laughs> Great hobby, right? He's not paid for it, just for fun. He does some metalworking. And what he does is he heats up his furnace in his garage until it's super hot. Heats it up till it's super hot. And then he takes a piece of metal that's already in the shape of something else and he places that piece of metal into the furnace. And as the fire heats up, the metal begins to soften so that it will bend or twist or flatten or whatever you want to do with it. And then once the metal is hot enough, he takes it out of the furnace, places it on an anvil and hits it with a hammer to change its shape. And as he hits it, little pieces of metal fall off onto the ground or dissolve. And he keeps doing this process over and over, heating the metal, then hammering it down, heating the metal, hammering it down, until the metal resembles what he wants it to look like. It's still metal. In many ways, it's similar to the piece of metal that he started with. However, now the metal is shaped in the way he wants it to be, the ugly Bad parts of the metal are gone, and he's left with something more beautiful that he intended for it. This is what Peter is thinking of as he describes the end of the world. He's not saying that the end of the world is going to be destroyed and cease to exist. Rather, Peter is saying that the earth and the works that are done on it will be burned up if they are bad, but will remain if they are good, just like the bad parts of the metal fall off and dissolve while the good parts remain and are shaped into something more beautiful in metalworking. So the phrase then that we can use to describe this process is show their metal. Show their metal. Say that with me. Show their metal. Yes, show their metal. Peter is saying that when Jesus returns, the earth and the works that are done on it will show their metal. The earth and the works will remain if they are like the good part of the metal or 
They will dissolve if they are bad and like undesired metal. The earth and the works that are done on it will show their metal. If we consider then that this verse is one, like we already said, of the apocalyptic genre, which is meant to encourage and challenge us, and two, using a metalworking analogy to describe the return of Jesus, then I think we can reread this verse and see that it makes a bit more sense because we now see Peter providing us amazing imagery. He now says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief, meaning the day Jesus comes back will be unknown and sudden. It will be a shock to us. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. Jesus' return, he's saying, will be so magnificent that it will be as if the sky disappears with the greatest thunder we've ever heard, so great even that the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will show their metal such that if the works are good and righteous and worthy of lasting into Jesus' new permanent kingdom on earth, they will remain while the bad works burn up and dissolve. So what should we believe about the future? Well, Peter tells us that we should believe that Jesus is coming back to refine and purify all things. Jesus is coming back to refine and purify all things. Jesus is going to come back as suddenly as a thief and his return will be so great that it looks like the heavens blow up and everything that is terrible and unrighteous will be burned up while the good things of creation will remain for eternity on earth with Jesus. Jesus, church, is coming back to refine and purify all things. Amen. This means that the world we will see when Jesus returns will resemble God's original creation in its perfection and beauty. However, it will maintain the good, beautiful developments of the world we currently inhabit. It also means that God's people will dwell with Jesus on earth for eternity when Jesus returns rather than being taken away to some city in the sky because God's command in Genesis 1.28 to fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the earth, it still remains. And because God still loves everything that he made, sees that it is very good, despite everything being infected by sin, when Jesus returns, he will permanently destroy sin and its effects on creation, and in so doing, will usher in the most magnificent, most beautiful, most lovely world we could ever imagine. In other words, the end of the world will not look like the end of the world. The end of the world will look like the start instead of a new and better Eden, where Jesus, having raised the dead who had faith in him to life, walks among us, as perfect king, and where we participate in the eternal, beautifying activity of creation development. When Jesus returns, the world will be pure and perfect, refined and holy, beautiful and lovely. It will be amazing. And we should expect that Jesus is coming back to do this. This brings us to our second question. We know that we should expect the world to look like 
what we should expect the world to look like when Jesus returns. So now we need to ask, how should this impact the way that we live now? How should this impact the way that we live now? How should our knowing that Jesus will come back to refine and purify all things impact the way that we live now? Let's read from verses 11 to 13 here in chapter 3. Peter says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells you've been tracking with what Peter is saying, then the question he asks here should seem like the obvious question. (laughs) If Jesus is coming back to refine and purify all things such that the good works done on earth remain into eternity while the bad and evil things done on earth dissolve, then the question he asks here is both the right question to ask and also one with an obvious answer. What sort of people ought you to be? You should be people who live lives of holiness and godliness. Because if you are a people who live holy and godly lives, then the things you do will last forever. If, however, you are a people who do not trust in Jesus, who do whatever feels best for you, who care little of what God wants or what those around you need, then the alternative answer is that neither you nor the things you do will last into eternity on earth with Jesus. Here, Peter is directly confronting the false teachers mentioned earlier. The false teachers were undermining Jesus. They were denying the promises of God and were encouraging people to live for themselves rather than for God. Therefore, when Peter asks, what sort of people ought you to be, his question implies, should you be like the false teachers or should you be people of holiness and godliness? Who are you going to be like? And yet, while Peter's question is about their behavior, his question is ultimately about their identity. When he asks, how ought you to behave, he is ultimately asking, what do you believe? What do you believe? Because what you believe directly impacts who you are and how you behave. Thus, Peter is asking, will you believe Jesus and behave accordingly Or will you believe these teachers and behave like them? What will you do? One of the more amazing parts of this question is that Peter is the one asking it. (laughs) If you look over to Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 33, we see the story of Jesus walking on water to his disciples. And in this story, Peter is one of Jesus' disciples, right? He's one of the 12, and he's in the boat with the other disciples. And as Jesus approaches the boat, Peter cries out, Lord, if it is you walking on water, command me to come to you on the water, to which Jesus says, come, come, Peter. Amazingly, Peter gets out of the boat and walks on the water to Jesus. But as he is walking, he's human. He's human, right? So as he's walking, he realizes it's windy He's like, I don't know how to walk on water. I've never done this before. I'm an infant in terms of walking on water. And so as he's there, he starts to sink because he starts doubting. He's fearful and he starts sinking. So Peter does the natural thing. He cries out to Jesus 
And the text says in Matthew 14, 31, as he's crying out to Jesus, that Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When Peter asks his question to the Christians reading his letter, he does so having been just like them. Peter doubted. Peter was even with Jesus almost every day of Jesus' ministry, directly learning from him. And even still, Peter doubted. Even when Peter believed Jesus was walking on water to the point that he was walking on water with Jesus, even in that moment, he doubted. And as a result, his behavior changed. When Peter believed, he walked on water. And when Peter doubted, he sank. So when Peter asks, what sort of people ought you to be? He's asking them, will you believe Jesus and his promises such that your faith leads you to walk on water in obedience to him? Or will you believe the doubters and the false teachers such that you sink in disobedience to Jesus because of your little faith? What sort of people ought you to be? How should you live now knowing that Jesus is coming back to refine and purify all things in the future. How should you live? Peter's answer is that we should have faith in Jesus and as a result live holy and godly lives. We should have faith in Jesus and as a result live holy and godly lives. But he doesn't stop there. He continues saying that we should be waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolve. The heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise... We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Both waiting for and hastening, those two words that show up, are a little oxymoronic sounding, like we're being told to do opposite things at the same time, almost as if you had a diet coach and they told you to lose weight by participating in a hot dog eating contest. It does not seem to go together. However, waiting for and hastening fits exactly into what we've been talking about so far. And it's basically a different way of saying believe and behave. Wait and hasten, believe, behave. Wait, hasten, believe, behave. Wait, hasten, believe. <laughs> Just say it over and over. If you believe Jesus is coming back to refine and purify all things, you will behave in a holy and godly way so that you and your works would last into eternity with Jesus. This is what Peter is saying. As you are waiting for Jesus to come back, to refine and purify all things, then hasten, which means exercise special effort, hasten to do righteous things that will last into eternity with Jesus. Because Peter is saying that Jesus' return will destroy everything that is sinful and evil, we ought to hasten to exercise special effort to be a people and to do things that will not be destroyed but will last into eternity. So how should our belief that Jesus is coming back to refine and purify all things impact the way that we live now? Well, Peter says we should be holy and godly people who live in such a way that our righteous works last with us into eternity. We should be holy and godly people who live in such a way that our righteous works last with us into eternity. He's saying that if we truly believe 
that Jesus is coming back and that when he returns, he'll refine creation in such a way that the evil things of this world are destroyed while the good, righteous things of this world remain. If we believe that, then our belief in his glorious return will affect our present behavior. Our future belief will change our present behavior. The implication of this then, man, it's, it's, it's so amazing. You just, <laughs> I'm telling you, you gotta wait, it's amazing. The implication of this then is that because God has ordained the cultural development of the earth, which we see in Genesis 1, and because God will maintain the goodness of that development into eternity, then the good cultural development that we do now, the building of good and beautiful cities, Homes, technologies, art, etc., has the potential to last into eternity because God has empowered his people, the church, you and me, to be his image bearers here on earth to bring about good, lasting, righteous things on earth. We have the ability to create and participate in making eternally lasting things. And the potential for us then is that we could build and create such beautiful, lasting, magnificent institutions, systems, workplaces, healthcare, innovations, and on and on, that those things would be a part of Jesus' eternally lasting kingdom. I told you, I told you, if you would hear him on his terms, Peter would give us a much greater vision for the return of Jesus than we may have had before. But I'm sure you're also wondering what this actually means for you. All right, that's what we all want to know. Tell me, tell me, Tim, what does this mean for me? Well, we'll start with me. Uh, for me, right now, as a worship leader, that's my job, that's my occupation. In the position God has called me to be in right now and to stay in right now, it is my job to consider what kinds of songs we might sing for eternity. To ask, what kind of beautiful melodies might people of all tribes and tongues sing to Jesus in worship to Jesus for eternity? How might the words that I write and that we sing be most glorifying to God, most singable to the people, the congregation, you in front of me, and most interesting that we desire to sing them forever? And you know what? In this life, I probably won't ever be able to write the perfect song that lasts forever only because sin still exists, right? <laughs> That's the only reason. Because sin still does exist and affects the things that I do. I might not make it perfect. Sin affects things, but I should still try. Because if the Spirit of God is within me, then the power to create beautiful, lasting melodies exists inside of me. And it is my responsibility to work at my craft to create beautiful things for God's glory and for the joy of his people. That's my job. That's my job. It means, this means, if you're a person in a position where your decisions and actions affect the people around you, and to an extent, this is all of us, if you're in any kind of people-affecting position, we could call it. If you're in a people-affecting position, you think leaders, parents, all, you know, if you're in a people-affecting position, and if you trust that Jesus will return to refine and purify all things, that it is your responsibility as image bearers of God who are called to subdue the earth and create beautiful things, it is your responsibility 
responsibility to consider how the people or organization or family you lead, how the systems you create, the people you have authority over or affect might look and function in a world without sin. That is your responsibility. It is your responsibility to dream of the time when Jesus returns and to wonder what kind of things might last and would please Jesus and last with him into eternity. You need to be asking, what does it look like to lead my family or my students or any group of people that I have authority over or I affect or whatever? What does it look like to lead them in the new kingdom? That's the question. What does it look like to create environments in your own home or workplace that are set up not for your personal gain, but for the betterment of creation and society as a whole? Or to ask, how might I do the task in front of me so well that it leads to something so amazing such that the thing I am doing could last for eternity? We have to ask this. And then, once you have that image in your mind, so you ask the question, you get the image in your mind, and once you have that image in your mind, work towards it. That's what we should do. Of course, you might not make it perfect, but you're not called to perfection. You're called to create lasting, life-giving things. Lasting, life-giving things. This is for everyone. It's for teachers, for construction workers, for artists, for computer programmers, and on and on as the image bearers of God who trust that Jesus will return to refine and purify all things such that the good things that we do and create will last into eternity while the ugly, sinful things disappear. It is our image-bearing responsibility to dream of a time when sin will not affect our work and to consider how we might work in light of that reality so that the things we do now might last into eternity. It's our responsibility as God's image bearers to wonder if there might be a better way and to work towards that, even if it means we make less money, even if it means we don't follow the American dream, even if it means we have to think of others' needs before our own, even if it means some things have to die so that better things can take their place, even if it means we have to stay where we are at despite not being fulfilled by it or feeling fulfilled by it. And when we believe in him, We can change the world simply by staying in our current jobs, by living in our current communities, by loving our difficult families, by being there for our hurting friends, and on and on. This is the power of God in you. I don't know what all of your jobs are, nor would I be the best person to ask necessarily how your work might be done in such a way that it would last for eternity. You know your work, you know your jobs, but I do know that as a people who trust in Jesus, who believe that he is coming back, who are the image bearers of God, who have been entrusted by God to promote life and the flourishing of all creation, I know it is our responsibility to not be satisfied with the status quo, but to work at our vocations, at our jobs, at our current callings in such a way that Jesus would see our work and be pleased for it to last into the new heaven and the new earth. We won't do it perfectly. The work you do will be hard, but the work you do, the work I do, the work that we do, church, is given to us by God. Our work matters. It matters for the flourishing 
And for the beautifying of those around us, it matters for the glory of God. And when we work for the Lord, which all of us do, then it is our responsibility to bear his name and his image in everything that we do. Are you a student? Do your studies unto the Lord. Learn and seek to understand and desire to know as much as you can so that you can work and create lasting things in this world that could last into the next. Your work matters. Are you a retail worker? Do your job unto the Lord. Help people find things that they need. Be willing to go above and beyond in your workplace simply for the sake of doing the job well because your work matters. The food or drink or clothes that people buy in your store gives them life for tomorrow. And God loves life. So do your job as well as you can for the glory of God, for the flourishing of those you serve and work alongside of your work matters. Are you someone who makes things or works in manufacturing? Do your job unto the Lord. Create car parts or machinery or computers or buildings that last. Recognize that your job is not just a mundane, meaningless task, but is a job that allows for human flourishing as you produce things that help people's lives. Your work matters. Church, your work matters. Do it unto the Lord, not for your glory, but for God's. Love those around you. Work hard for your neighbor, even the difficult neighbor or friend, that they might have life and flourish. And then, after you work hard, rest. And remember that God is sustaining you. Good work will last into eternity, and good rest will last along with it. Work for the glory of God. Rest for the glory of God. Create beautiful things that last for the glory of God in the place God has called you in this moment, in whatever job you church are an image bearer of God, placed there to work for the flourishing of those around you to do such good work that it might last forever. What we do matters. It matters. It can last. It matters. As we conclude then, I think the question that we should be asking is, how does knowing all this, how does trusting that Jesus will return to refine and purify all things, how does knowing this, how does it help me to be more content now? Right? We're in a series, Choosing Contentment. So how does this help us in our contentment? And I think really, as we've looked at this passage, this answer will differ depending on whether or not you trust in the return of Jesus. There's two sides of this. If, like the false teachers in this passage, you don't trust that Jesus will return, if you've listened all morning and maybe you aren't convinced that Jesus was even alive to begin with or maybe you aren't convinced that Jesus is God and therefore definitely won't come back, if that's you, then you'll never be able to find true contentment. Sure, you might find moments of happiness or fleeting moments of contentment, but unless you believe that Jesus is God, that he defeated sin and death through his death and resurrection and trust that he is coming back, the Lord of all, and will raise those who trust in him from death to new life for eternity. Unless you believe this, there will be nothing in life, in this life, that will be able to provide you true contentment. Nothing. The good news for you, though, for all of us, is that Jesus loves you Jesus is offering you the satisfaction and the contentment that has been eluding you, and it is available to you right now. If you confess with your mouth, 
Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and that he's coming back again, church, you'll find the contentment you've been missing. You'll find the hope you've been missing. That's how you become more content now. Turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. The flip side of this, however, is that if you do trust in Jesus' return, then you will develop a natural contentment over time as your faith increases. If you trust in Jesus' return, you'll develop a natural contentment over time as your faith increases. And as your faith increases, your contentment will increase and permeate all areas of your life such that the things that used to cause you discontentment fade away. Not all at once, over time. If you truly trust that Jesus will return, then you will naturally gain a deep contentment that allows you to weather the trials and difficulties in life because you know no matter what happens now, Jesus will return, raise you from the dead to life with him for eternity. And as you remain in relationship with other people who believe this same thing, then your contentment and your faith will only increase. And as your contentment increases, as your faith and knowledge of Jesus increases, you will become less discontent about your own circumstances and you will begin to see that the Spirit of God that dwells inside of you has given you the ability to remain in hard places and difficult circumstances. When you trust in the return of Jesus, you will see that the things that cause you discontentment are the result of sin, and as an image bearer of God, your mindset will change. Now when you see the injustice around you, the governmental corruption, the broken systems and institutions, the crime that exists now, rather than run from it, you will stay and seek to reform it and turn it into something that might last for eternity. When you have the natural contentment that comes from trusting in Jesus' return, then the things that used to bring you discontentment will now be opportunities to bring new life and beauty to the brokenness before you. The reality is that your contentment that is founded in the return of Jesus may lead you to stay in a difficult job, where you seek to bring reform and reconciliation to the brokenness before you rather than leaving in hopes of finding contentment elsewhere. Your contentment in Jesus may lead you to remain in a city or a state that you aren't excited about because you now seek to fix the problems you see rather than run from them. Your contentment in Jesus' return may lead you to start a homeless shelter or a soup kitchen or become a lawyer in order to reform the judicial system or run for public office to bring trust instead of corruptibility when your present contentment is founded on your future hope in the return of Jesus. You will choose to bring redemption rather than to run. You will seek to bring justice rather than abandon those affected by injustice and you will work to do good things that will last into eternity. When we are a people who believe that Jesus is coming back to refine and purify all things, we will behave now by preparing for his future return. Let's pray together, church. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.